Hey, good morning, Dr. Lamb. Good morning. Yeah, it's Art Lamb calling from Seattle. Nice, nice talking to you. The, I'm uh, Mason McTavy from Massachusetts General Hospital, and today uh, I thank you for contributing to the podcast uh, for the Society of Neurosciences in uh, Critical Care and Anesthesia and Critical Care, and our topic today is carotid endotrectomy. And I would just like first to say that Dr. Arthur Lamb is a long-term, long-time member of SNAC and a true expert in uh, carotid and artrectomy, has written and contributed a lot uh, in that area of carotid and artrectomy. Dr. Lamb is a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's the director, medical director of the Swedish Cerebrovascular Laboratory at Swedish Neuroscience Institute at the Swedish Hospital in Seattle. And uh, for starters, uh, Dr. Lamb, I would like to start. When someone is has to take care of a patient with carotid and arthrectomies, what what would be the anesthetic goals and uh, and what should we want to be shooting for when you have a patient scheduled carotid and arthrectomy? Uh, I think the primary goals are to focus on two particular organs. Carotid arterectomy is somewhat an ironic procedure that the procedure is performed to prevent a stroke, but it itself can cause a stroke, as we know. And, and yet, we also know that presence of carotid artery disease is often a, a good indicator the patient may have coronary artery disease as well. So... Simplistically speaking, the primary goals are really to prevent uh, any perioperative damage to the brain uh, and the heart. Uh, so you need to think, of, think about both organs. There are multiple potential causes of perioperative stroke, so you need to consider both. You know, you need to consider all three phases of the operation, which is preoperative, intraoperatively, and postoperative, and the and the causes uh, can be quite different. So those those are my major anesthetic goals is to maintain uh, good uh, <clears throat> uh, to prevent damage to, to the brain and uh, and the heart and of course to do that is to maintain uh, good perfusion uh, to both organs. Okay, well, so in addition to the usual uh, a good IV, a good and big IV access and an arterial line, uh, intra-arterial line monitoring. Uh, any particular vasoactive agents that one should be should prepare and have it ready by the time patient's uh, care starts. Well, I think it's important to, uh, as I mentioned, to maintain perfusion uh, uh, to both organs. Uh, <clears throat> and what I don't think there are clear uh, data to show that one uh, agent is superior to another. Uh, from, from my perspective, the importance is to maintain. Uh, a target perfusion pressure relevant to the particular individual that you're caring for, meaning within his normal uh, butt pressure range. And uh, I personally, I prefer to use uh, uh, a neosynephrine infusion uh, for the main reasons that most of the, uh, the causes of hypotension, I believe, are from uh, peripheral vasodilation uh, related to, to uh, the anesthetic agents we, that we use. Uh, for patients that who may require uh, inotropic support because of cardiac problems, then I think norepinephrine is probably a better choice. 
than than uh, than uh, phenylephrine infusion. Uh, but for most patients, I find uh, it's easy to titrate. Uh, Neosinephrine infusion to support the blood pressure. Okay. So some, in, in some institutions, including mine here at Mass General Hustle and my former institution at the University of Iowa, uh, some patients are admitted prior to the surgery because of the stroke and are placed on a heparin drip. So what is what is what do we do with that? What do we do with that drip? When do we stop it? Do we keep it going? As we, what's the what do you think the management of that drip should be? Well, obviously there is a, a wide a variation among different institutions. It is not a common practice uh, in my institution. Very few of our patients uh, would come to the operating room with heparin infusion, and for the rare ones that that come either because of uh, um, documented evidence of ongoing uh, emboli, uh, you know, either uh, indicated by pre-op MRI or perhaps more convincingly with uh, transcranial Doppler monitoring, which is a, a very common practice in, in my institution. Uh, if they come with on a heparin infusion, and I think it is something, uh, a decision that has to be uh, uh, decided jointly between the anesthesia team and the uh, neurosurgical team or vascular surgical team, depending on uh, who's actually performing the uh, the operation. I think for patients who clearly are having uh, crescendo TIA, uh, those patients it may be, uh, you know, in other words, you have to look at the risk-benefit ratio. For those patients, it may be beneficial to keep them on the infusion uh, and, you know, knowing that the uh, increased risk of bleeding. Uh, for cases that are not as crucial, there is not indication of ongoing emboli, I think it's probably prudent to stop the heparin infusion uh, for the surgery and uh, and then uh, give bolus uh, before uh, cross-clamping. But as I mentioned uh, in the outset, uh, it, it needs to be a joint uh, decision. And it, oftentimes, it might involve the neurologist as well uh, who has seen the patient uh, preoperatively. Okay. So once now we decide to go ahead, is regional anesthesia preferable to general anesthesia or vice versa what what's uh, what's your recommendation doctor well i think i think this is uh, obviously a very controversial topic uh, again there is enormous regional uh, variation uh, in in terms of practice and and also among the surgical specialties uh, i i think i mean based on the gala trial there is no difference between uh, regional and and general anesthesia uh, I think first and foremost is, is obviously the surgical preference as well as the patient's uh, preference. I think there is cer there's certainly uh, value to be said about doing this under regional anesthesia because, you know, you have the best monitor uh, possible to determine whether the patient needs to be shunted or not. Uh, it's one of the few uh, procedures that I think that in that regard it, it clearly uh, has a distinct advantage. Uh, having said that, uh, not every procedure can be performed under regional anesthesia, meaning patients who have very high lesion, uh, you know, deep under the, the uh, close to the mandible. Uh, those are very difficult uh, to perform. Uh, <coughs> it causes enormous discomfort, and, and regional anesthesia is not satisfactory for, for those cases. Uh, some surgeons are not comfortable uh, doing uh, these cases under uh, regional anesthesia. And some patients do not want to be awake uh, for uh, for the procedure. 
And so I think it's it's again it's it's what seems to work for that particular surgeon and for uh, for that particular institution. Uh, obviously, uh, from a scientific point of view, as I mentioned before, the Gila trial didn't show uh, any difference uh, between regional uh, and general. Uh, I do believe regional anesthesia has the simplistic approach that you don't need any sophisticated monitors in terms of uh, demonstrating the need uh, uh, which we see which patient uh, needs to be shunted. I mean, would you like to weigh in on to if if the decision is to go with regional anesthesia, would your preference be superficial cervical block, deep cervical block, or both, or something else? I, I don't think it makes any difference whether you do a superficial uh, cervical block or a deep cervical plexus block. I personally prefer just to do a, a superficial block and uh, and and then supplement it uh, by by the surgeon uh, field block, which is often performed whether you do superficial or deep. So I really don't think that that uh, that that's an important decision. The important decision is really decide whether you want to do uh, regional versus uh, uh, general anesthesia. Uh, of course, this is a good segue to say if you're going to do general anesthesia, then what kind of monitor uh, would you need? Uh, and I think it's important to put it in the perspective to uh, to look at the the perioperative, the cause of perioperative stroke in carotid anatorectomy. Uh, you know, as an anesthesiologist, we, we focus a lot on supporting the blood pressure and making sure the blood flow is adequate uh, during the period, uh, obviously, that, uh, that places the patient at risk, which is during cross-clamping of the uh, uh, carotid artery. And yet, if you look at the overall causes of perioperative stroke, uh, you know, ischemic stroke as a result of uh, uh, cross-clamping ischemia probably accounts for only a third of the causes of perioperative stroke. So in other words, two-thirds of the strokes are caused by uh, emboli. And now, uh, having said that, uh, the reason, there's a reason why uh, we as, a, as an anesthesiologist focus on uh, intraoperative ischemia because we cannot do much about uh, the embolic causes of stroke, but we can do something uh, in terms of uh, maintaining perfusion during the period of ischemia. And the, obviously, the, the most commonly used monitor is uh, is EEG. Uh, if you look at old data uh, from the NASA trial, uh, the majority, of, you know, about 50 percent of the patients were monitored, and the majority of the uh, monitoring is uh, with EEG. Uh, a variety of other monitors are also available. Uh, the gold standard is, is EEG, but I want to point out all physiologic, uh, all functional monitoring uh, cannot monitor for embolic causes, uh, meaning EEG, somatosensory evoke potential, and motor evoke potential uh, uh, can monitor ischemia during cross-clam, but are not going to be able uh, to either monitor embolic causes or more uh, more recently recognized the risk of hyperperfusion syndrome uh, post-release of, of the cross-clam. Uh, transcranial Doppler is unique in that sense. It can't diagnose uh, ongoing emboli, and it can uh, diagnose uh, post-operative uh, hyperperfusion syndrome. Uh, in, uh, there is no, there, I mean, studies don't, don't have the data to, to prove that one method of monitoring is superior to another, or in fact, there's no data to show that monitoring makes uh, any difference in terms of actual outcome. Uh, in my own institution, we, we do uh, transcranial Doppler, EEG, as well as SSEP. 
So, Dr. Lamb, could you explain to the listeners what is hyperperfusion syndrome? Well, um, the the theory uh, behind hyperperfusion syndrome is simply that for patients with high-grade carotid stenosis, the uh, the cerebral, the vascular bed distal to the tight stenosis uh, has been basically uh, staffed for blood for over a long period of time, and in order to compete for collateral flow, has lowered its vascular resistance to encourage uh, increased flow. And uh, it's somewhat akin to uh, operating on uh, uh, arterial venous mal- malformation. The areas adjacent to the AVM uh, have lowered the vascular resistance to compete for blood flow, and, and it's the same with these areas distal uh, to high-grade stenosis, because the vascular resistance has been lower, and uh, it takes time to adjust. It's been, been so used to such low perfusion pressure, you suddenly open it up, and now you're seeing a, a very high blood pressure relative to what the vascular territory has been used to. And so you create a situation where there is no... And, and these vessels uh, do not yet uh, regain the ability to uh, to autoregulate to uh, uh, to increase its resistance. So you end up with uh, very high flow, and uh, and with uh, high perfusion, and and you can it can cause uh, in the minor cases or in the less severe cases causes a severe headache, and the more severe cases can cause uh, cerebral hemorrhage. The commonly quoted. Uh, incidence is about 2%. 2% of the patients would experience uh, symptomatic uh, hyperperfusion syndrome. There are many more cases that are probably uh, stay asymptomatic, but if you were to uh, measure cerebral blood flow either using uh, a nuclear scan or using transcranial Doppler, uh, you will be able to demonstrate uh, increased uh, flow to the, the uh, ipsilateral hemisphere. So what should be our blood pressure management after release of the... <clears throat> Cross clamp of the carotid artery. Uh, uh, you know the the common uh, teaching, of course, is that when you cross clamp, uh, you raise the blood pressure uh, or the patient's normal blood pressure by about twenty percent. But I would submit to you that there is absolutely no data uh, to support uh, that practice. In, in, to me, in some ways, would we are accustomed in doing that just to make ourselves feel better that we are doing something. The, the number of patients that can actually benefit from uh, from increasing the 20 percent uh, of blood pressure is probably fairly low. Uh, the reason why I say that is that if the patient has good collateral, meaning uh, collateral circulation through the anterior communicating artery or through the posterior communicating artery, if there's sufficient collateral, there's probably no need to raise the blood pressure. Uh, and patients who have absolutely no collateral, meaning the uh, the variant with absent uh, ACOM or absent PCOM, uh, increasing the blood pressure probably isn't going to do a whole lot if you don't have the the actual collateral circulation. And so uh, there's no clear data to show uh, what proportion of patients would, uh, would benefit. Based on my own uh, personal experience looking at using transcranial Doppler, uh, that you can actually see what happened to the flow, uh, you know, probably only about maybe a quarter of the population, 25%, uh, would benefit from raising the blood pressure. And some patients who do need it uh, may need to increase the blood pressure by more than uh, than 20%. And this is where the role of monitoring comes in. Uh, if you, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're using SSCP or EEG or or transcranial Doppler. Uh, by having some feedback, uh, you, you you kind of know what, how much perhaps you can target how much you can raise the blood pressure. What I'm trying to say 
is that if the you, you see changes in, in EEG, you might want to raise the blood pressure 20, 30 percent and see if that makes any difference. And if not, the surgeon would have uh, to use the shunt. Uh, the the advantage of TCD is you get instantaneous uh, um, uh, feedback. You can see exactly uh, what sort of uh, response you get uh, when you raise the blood pressure, and indeed whether you need to raise the blood pressure at all. So. Uh our, now this is very, very good and useful information, Dr. Lamb. But now once the surgery is done and we awaken the patient extubated, where would you send the patient postoperatively? Pack you or should they go to surgical intensive care or neurointensive care? What, what do you recommend? Uh, well, I, I think they should go to uh, intensive care unit. Uh, whether they should go to a, a neuro ICU or not, it depends on whether the institution has a des dedicated uh, neuro critical care unit. But I do believe that for the first 24 hours, they should go to the critical care unit for two reasons. Uh, one is potential uh, airway issues uh, that uh, <clears throat> some patients can develop, you know, a hematoma in the neck and, uh, and causing uh, airway obstruction, and, and they are best watched in the uh, intensive care unit. And the other reason, of course, is that they, they can also have neurologic complications uh, as a result of, uh, of either uh, partial occlusion or ongoing uh, emboli uh, that can uh, lead to stroke. And it's best to, uh, uh, to keep a close eye on these patients uh, so that if there is anything else that needs to be done or the patient needs to be taken back to the operating room, uh, then you, know, you can do it quicker rather than, uh, rather than a delayed fashion. Well, Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for participating in the podcast regarding carotid and artectomy and taking the time to teach us about this. And uh, I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate this. This is your host, Mason McTarby from Massachusetts General Hospital, saying to all our listeners, thank you very much. Right. Goodbye, Dr. Yep. Lamb. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.